You know, throughout the month of September, we've looked at 1 Peter, specifically chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, but we've, we've jumped around in there and tied things together. The first week we, we looked at it and we said that we can live with hope when we see God's kingdom and make it a treasure, when we see God's kingdom as treasure, and we make Christ our Lord, that that's when hope is realized, when we see the treasure in the kingdom of God and we make Christ not just our Savior, but make him our Lord as well. This week two we talked about that uh, hope is on display in how we live our lives. So the rest of the world understands and, and has an idea of this hope that we carry within us when we live our lives as Christ directed us. So uh, we, we said, and this was, um, I think, a, a quote that many people grabbed onto, was this, a saint is someone whose life makes it easier to believe in God. And it's just our, our life is, uh, hope is displayed in how we live our lives. And then last week, I th- I think it was no coincidence, and if you ever wonder, how does God speak? Does God speak? Uh, if you were here last week, it's a, a good example because of this. Uh, I didn't ask Lori to speak on what she spoke on. I gave her freedom. You speak on what you feel God's telling you to speak on. And she came, and the topic of her uh, sermon was being imitators of Christ, how our lives can imitate Jesus Christ and why that should happen that fits perfectly what we talked about the week before, right? That hope is on display with how we live our life. And so uh, God is speaking something to us. Amen? Amen. Well, I appreciate Lori uh, coming and uh, her willingness to hear from God and deliver a sermon to us. And so today, week four, we're going to talk about hope's response. Hope's response. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, we'll read it again. Says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So we're going to look at this today, and it's going to be uh, less preachy, more teachy, okay? Um, every, you know, every sermon has a little bit of a slant one way or the other, because I really want you to grasp and understand uh, what we're doing here. And really, uh, we're going to break down both sentences before we dive into what God is telling us through Peter, okay? Um, so some people love a teachy message, some of you not so... I'm just preparing you. So let's look at, um, uh, I'm going to go back here. So Peter writes this, uh, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Um, One of the reasons I want to break this down is because initially the New Testament was written in the Greek language and we speak English. Um, and so there's sometimes translation and nuance differences, and these two verses are a perfect example of why um, it's important to understand, at least for the minister to preaching the Greek language. So, that, that phrase, prepared to give an answer, 
is uh, the Greek word apologia, okay? We get the English word apologetics from it. And it's simply this, uh, a well-reasoned reply is the definition. And in ancient courts, it was the word for the legal defense. So uh, when, when an accusation w- came or um, a suggestion or comment, whatever, the, the defense or the reply back to that was called the apologia. It was the, the well-reasoned reply. So if you think about a court system, if there's a, uh, the, the prosecuting attorney stands up and states the case, the defense attorney then stands up and gives the apologia, the well-reasoned reply to the accusation or the whatnot. And so this is important for us to understand because he says prepared to give an answer. But he's not talking about just any answer. He's talking about uh, a well-reasoned answer, a thought-out answer. And this becomes important because Christians have been accused of checking their brains at the door when it comes to matters of faith. Okay? And the Bible does not advocate that. It's not blind faith. You don't throw thought out the window. You don't throw reason out the window. You don't throw facts out the window. You look at these, you examine these, you learn these, you, you, you meditate on these, you put these things together so that you can have a well-thought-out, reasonable, convincing defense. How Would any of you hire a lawyer who you were defending yourself, and when it was their turn to stand, it was like, you know what, my client responded that way because they felt like it. That's my defense. Like, no, none of us. We'd fire that lawyer immediately or, or end up finding ourselves suffering whatever penalty or consequences from losing. What Peter is saying is here, no, no, no. Think through your faith. Know your faith. Ask questions. Search the scriptures. And this is the point here that the follower of Jesus Christ must know their faith, the reason they believe. Why have you placed your faith in Christ? And do you have the supporting scripture? Do we know this well enough that we can show the reason for why we have this faith? I've thought it out. And you know what? John 3.16 says this, and Romans says this, and so-and-so says this. You don't have to have this memorized, but you should know this. It's like any academia. Well, what's, you know, four plus two? It's six. Well, defend that. How do you know that? Right? It's, it's the same when it comes to our faith. Do you and I have a convincing explanation for the faith that you hold on to? Can you explain it to yourself? With supporting scripture. A well-reasoned reply. Let's move on. He says this, but do this. Let's just pause right there. Okay, a little bit of English. Here he's saying, but do this. Do what? What's he saying? Do what? Peter is describing the way in which we are to give our reply. Right? So this isn't a separate sentence. This isn't a separate thought. He's now going into saying, hey, have a well-reasoned answer for those who ask, but do this. In other words, give the answer in this way. With gentleness. Uh, Gentleness 
is a fruit of the Spirit. Um, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Note to self, uh, gentleness is not a gift of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. What's the difference? Right? A gift of the Spirit is something that you don't earn, you don't achieve, you don't work towards, it's gifted to you. Gentleness is fruit of the Spirit, which is the result of you living a life following after Christ. When you willfully make decisions for Christ, where you revere Christ, uh, the kingdom of God as treasure, and you make Christ your Lord, and you follow after him and his thoughts, you try to make his thoughts your thoughts, and his ways your ways, as you pursue that, you develop fruit of gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit. It's a life of living in the Spirit. Gentleness is produced along with these others. Important to know because we go, oh God, I just wish you'd give me the gift of gentleness. Or God, I'd really love the gift of self-control. I'd love the gift of those things too. Um, but they're, they're not gifts, they're fruit. They come through the application of a life lived in the Spirit. Uh, and they're developed. Let's move on. So, when it comes to gentleness, both Paul and Peter write that gentleness is a characteristic of the new life in Christ for the believer. That, that believers should have gentleness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes this, Be completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. He wrote, In Colossians 3.12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. That gives us an indication that it takes effort on our part. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and self-control. So what does gentleness mean? I would probably argue that we don't have a good handle on the biblical Understanding and definition of gentleness. It literally means gentle force. Gentle force. It's meekness which expresses power with reserve. Wow, what does all that mean, Pastor? It's the ability to do something without wounding, breaking, or destroying. That's gentleness. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, uh, I have two grandsons. Uh, When my youngest grandson was born, his older brother wanted to play with him. And mom's response was, gentle, gentle, gentle. He's a newborn baby. Don't rough him up. Don't pile drive him. Like, gentle. Maybe an example for you that we can have is we think of a baby chick. When baby chicks are born, uh, most of the time, in, at least in controlled environments and farms and whatnot, they're, they're hatched in an incubator. So the eggs are collected, they're put under a heat lamp and right, humidity and all these kinds of things, and the little chick hacks, hatches out of the egg. And then the chick must be moved from the incubator to the pen where it will be kept, under the, the fry lamp. 
That's what I call it. It's not a fry lamp. It's a warming lamp, but it reminds me of a fry lamp. So you need to move that chick, that newly hatched chick, from the incubator to its container. And it requires what? Gentleness. Because you can accomplish that task in a lot of different ways. Right? You could say, oh, nice baby chick, there you go. Chick's in the container. It might be wounded. It might be dead. It might have a broken wing. But no, you don't want to wound it, destroy it, hurt it, break it, all those kinds of things. So you handle it with gentleness. You're still accomplishing the task, but you're doing it in such a way that the thing that you're handling is not destroyed. That's gentleness. Gentleness doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean pushover. It doesn't mean don't do what you're supposed to do. It means doing it in such a way don't wound, break, or destroy. That's gentleness. What else does he go on to? He says, do this with gentleness and respect. This, it's interesting, uh, when you look in the original language, this word respect is actually the word fear, phobos. And there's, we, hopefully you know there's different kinds of fear. There's terror that causes you to remove yourself from a dangerous situation. But then there's also a reverence fear, right? You have a very healthy respect. And this is the kind of fear we're encouraged to uh, see towards God, uh, Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, this fear for Christ. It's the same word. This reverence for Christ is the same word that Peter's using in, in delivering this reply out of reverence, out of fear. You say, well, Why? Um, why are we asking? Why are we, treat, why are we being told to treat people with respect as if they have value? I don't know why we even have to defend this or give examples of this. Um, I suppose it's because of our fallen nature. But in John, uh, I'm sorry, in um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see, human beings are God's finest creation. And they're the only part of his creation that bear his image. There's a, there's a word, a Latin word for this, imago Dei. And it means bearing the image of the creator, of God himself, that human beings do. And there is no matter, and it does not matter how much sin has marred that image. It cannot, and it has not, been erased. Every human being on the face of this planet carries the image of God. Whether they recognize it, don't recognize it, care or don't care, are huge sinners or regular sinners like you and me. The image of God, you cannot destroy it from the person. So here's the point for this. Oftentimes, in the Christian world, we start off with the thought process of looking at uh, non-Christian people 
And we see them as dirty, rotten sinners in need of God's forgiveness. This may be true. This is true. But when we adopt imago Dei, meaning we see people as image bearers of God himself, that's not our starting point. Our starting point is that person is made in the image of God and needs help discovering that. There's a huge difference. Because although the first may be true, your approach of the first thing you see when you see somebody who's far from God is that's a dirty, rotten, stinking person. They need to get God. It's not really treating that person with the kind of fear and reverence that Peter's encouraging us to. Right? Instead, we're we've kind of categorized them in a different class of people. Instead of saying, I care for that person because they carry the image of my God, and, and no matter how much they've marred it, no matter how much they don't realize it, they need help realizing they're image bearers of God. So why? Why do we treat people with respect as if they have value? Because they do have value. They are loved by God, where God sent his son to die for them in their marred, chaotic state. So our approach is different. Our approach is with value and respect and reverence. Let's move on. It says, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. This is a great example of bad translation work or inaccurate translation work, because the NIV says, keeping a clear conscience. Now, we understand a clear conscience, right? That, hey, I'm not doing evil. Here's the thing. The original language didn't say clear conscience. It said a good conscience. Let me tell you the difference. See, we all know what a conscience is, right? That's the ability to distinguish between more, more uh, morally good and bad, right? We're able to say, hey, Uh, that's good, that's bad. And it's our moral conscience that allows us to do that. It's really what separates us from the rest of God's creation is our conscience. Here's the thing, that the word before it is a descriptor. It's an adjective. What kind of conscience? Good, not clear, because the original language says good, which means this. It describes what originates from God and is empowered by him. So when we have the category good, when it says God is good, right? God is good because God is the original. Everything that comes from God is good because he is, um, everything originates from him. He's perfect. So when we say a good conscience, what we're saying is, It's a conscience that is informed by what is good. A conscience which is formed by what originates from God. Because here's the reality. What is informing your conscience? A conscience needs to be informed in order for it to work. If society is forming our conscience, we can, we can develop a, a view and have a clear conscience based on society's information, 
Or you can have a clear conscience based on God's information. Or you can have a clear conscience based on the devil's information. So a clear conscience doesn't really capture exactly what Peter's writing. Peter's saying you need to give your reply with a good conscience. A conscience that is informed by what originates from God himself. That the information that's informing your conscience has come from God. Not from gossip. Not from your own desires. Not from your culture or your society. Not from your own weaknesses and perceptions and biases and those kinds of things. Because guess what? Slaveholders in the South had a clear conscience in the midst of slavery. Would we say it was good or bad? They had a clear conscience. And there are people today running around all of Christendom and all of the world having a clear conscience but being misinformed by what is actually good. We're to give our reply to people who don't know God or are far from God or inquisiting about our faith but from a good conscience. A conscience that is informed by what originates from God himself. Do we see the difference? Paul defends himself like this before the Sanhedrin when you know, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, went to school, trained in their ways, and he's brought before them in Acts chapter 23. And he says this, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Paul's saying, listen, everything I have done up to this point has been informed and inspired by God, and I have let that rule my decisions in whether I'm good or bad, whether I'm doing right or wrong, good or bad. He said, it's God who has informed me to this day. Let's take a moment now and just, after we've defined each of these kinds of pieces that maybe have, uh, they're not the most accurate translation, maybe there's a nuance to it we didn't know before. So as Peter writes to us and he says, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. Do what? When our lives are imitating Christ, we live as people of hope. And that hope is on display. It should be on display as we become more and more like Christ. People will inevitably question or ask about the hope or the reason or the faith that you live. Sometimes that will be a positive question and sometimes that will be a negative attack. Either way, people will ask you, why are you living that way? Why do you talk that way? Why was that your response and not that? There should be a, a, a stark contrast and difference with the way believers live versus the rest of the world. And if the world can't tell the difference, it's time for God to clear the house, cleanse the house. If your coworker doesn't know there's something different about you, you need, you need to find Jesus again. If your family members don't know there's something different about you, you need to... You need to find Jesus again.
And I'm not talking about because you show up with a cross on your, on your, around your neck or on your shirt or, or you're carrying a Bible at your lunch hour. That's not the reason I'm talking about. Your responses should be different. Your values should be different. What, how you treat people should be different. And when these things happen, our, our hope, our faith is on display and people inevitably will comment and ask. And Peter is saying this, followers of Christ need to be prepared with a well-reasoned reply. That you need to know what you believe you need to know the scriptures that back up what you believe in order to reply when somebody asks you. We're not talking about a memorized response to people. There was a day when I was trained and we used to encourage training people like this is exactly what you should say when people ask. Well, it sounds like a salesperson. Welcome to McDonald's. How can I take your order? Happy to see you today. Like, right, who, who even cares? It's not personal. Why do you believe? Why have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Why have you made him Lord of your life? If you don't know, you should find out. You should find out. And then you should know the scriptures that support why you feel that way or why you believe that way. Whether they agree with you or disagree with you is, is, is not relevant. Our goal is they would, but a well-reasoned reply is, man, they, they hear my reply, it's, that's well thought out. You're living your life in a way that I can't argue with, so whether I agree or disagree with you, you've, you've given me something to think about. But giving a reply... And how we give the reply is equally as important. And this is a piece that I think pastorally my heart breaks. Because I see way too many Christians who just vent their venom and vomit on people feeling like they've completed the task. It's like if I asked you to paint a house... Painting a house takes careful planning and preparation. There's an understanding what's there. There's maybe rotten wood that has to be replaced. There's a scraping off the old paint. There's a sanding down and feathering the, the finishes. There's a, 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 a covering over uh, maybe bushes or carpet or those kinds of things so you don't make a mess. And then there's a, there's a like, sometimes people tape and it's acquiring the right tools to apply it just right so it sticks. Think of that. Versus I give you a can of paint and you're just like, hmm, hmm, done. With no care for the mess and the drip and the ugliness and how well it sticks or whether it comes out okay, you've completed the task. You put paint on the house. Which one would you rather? And I, you know, I'm, I personally am sick and tired of social media breaks my heart to watch Christians respond to non-Christians and how they do it. Social media, news, public, whatever it is. Like, I'm being bold for Jesus. No, you're not. You're being a jerk. You see, Jesus did this. And Peter's 
articulating to us that the defense that we have, the message and the reason, care must be taken not to wound, break, or destroy the very people we're replying to. Let me say it again. Care must be taken not to wound, break, or destroy the persons we are replying to. And you say, well, pastor, that's extremely difficult. I don't know if I can do that. You're right, you can't do it. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that you do it. It's not in your own strength. It's not in your own mind. It's, Lord, help me. This person's driving me mad. I just want to rip their head off. But you told me I need to handle this gently. Because the goal is the winning of their soul, not me winning the argument. I've already convinced myself. God has already convinced me of the answer. What in the world do I have to gain by winning the argument? And losing a potential soul, brother or sister, in the kingdom of God alongside me. You might get paint on the house, but you're going to have to redo it again. And guess what? The person who comes along the next time that has to redo it, their work is extra hard now because you were sloppy and you didn't care. See, we, put the, we need to put spiritual things in the natural terms so we can understand. When you are sloppy with your reply and your defense, it makes it harder for the next person who God sends along to try to witness and reply to them because now they're marred. Now there's gouges, now there's big drips, and there's all kinds of mess that has to be cleaned up before we can even do anything with it. And and, and Christian response is just, oh, well, I guess they just weren't open to the gospel. No, you just mishandled it. I know this is harsh today, but, but church, we have to open up our eyes. The church in general, we have to look at this and say, these people out there, they don't know they're made in the image of God. They don't know that Jesus Christ came and sacrificed himself so that they could have a relationship with him, that he loves them deeply. I mean, it's old news to us, especially if you've been saved for a long period of time. But the thought process that somebody would literally sacrifice their child for the greater good of humanity is crazy. I don't know if I could do it. That that love ran that deep for you and for me that he was willing to send Jesus Christ down and take all the punishment. Crazy. And that message needs to be delivered with well-reasoned, thought-out response that's cloaked in care and respect and gentleness and a good conscience, a conscience that's informed by God and not by a, a political party or a denomination or your, perf- or your own personal preferences and opinions. It's informed by a good conscience, a God conscience.
Sorry, I'm just asking the Lord, what, where does he want me to go now? Because I've gotten way off my intended plans. I know we live in an age that's really tough right now. I know that on every corner, you feel attacked for what you believe and how you want to live your life. And some days it just feels darn right overwhelming. And then you come into church and you hear a pastor preach like, no, you need to do this better and you need to do that better. I hope you will hear me clearly right now. The way through the craziness and the chaos you are experiencing now is to seek God's kingdom first. You lean into God. You reorient yourself around God's ways, not your neighbor's ways, not social media's ways, not your culture's expectations, not what the world thinks. You drown all of that out and you say, God, I'm I'm laser focused on you. And that is how you gain the strength and the empowerment and the inspiration to make, not not just survive, but to thrive. And that is what we're talking about today. It's what we've been talking about this entire month. That we are people of hope. We carry this great hope within us. And the issue is when you live in a nation that has relative ease, lots of comfort and wealth, the value of that diminishes. It's diminished value. It's one amongst many things that we have at our disposal. But you start taking that ease and that comfort and that wealth away... Your, your faith begins to be of more value. You begin to put more stock in your faith instead of the things around you. If you don't put more stock in your faith, you will not make it. This is why third world countries and people who have nothing often have the strongest faith and see God move in powerful ways. Because they begin to invest more into their faith They begin to focus, nope, I don't care what you say around me. I'm here. I'm following Jesus. And when they do that, their life, in the midst of the most terrible things, you see them with smiles, real joy, not fake joy. And you go, how is this even possible? It's it's possible because that hope through Jesus Christ has become treasure to them. And they live their lives for him in such a way that demonstrates this hope. And they know it because they read his word and they lean into him and they can speak. This is why I believe in Jesus because, you know, this one time I was this, and they're speaking from experience. And the people around go, wow, I want what you have. I care less about the attacks against Christianity, my faith. It doesn't change me at all. Am I trying to convince them or myself of my faith? If I'm trying to convince them, then I ought to do it in a way that they understand. 
right? If you're trying to get your kids to eat their vegetables, one of our chefs up there, she's, she used to be sneaky. She'd get her vegetables and she'd make them and she'd put them into like nice tasting things and the kids would, this is yummy. And she'd be like, hey, 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 and all their vegetables are in there. Like, and even the commercials now, like, oh, just throw cheese on it. Like, right? Because then the kids will eat their vegetables. But it's not, it's not that much different. If people see you living your life full of joy and they see you at peace with yourself, and not that things are perfect, but even when the world is chaos and you're living this way, they're like, hey, um, can you help me? What have you been drinking or smoking? Because I want some of that, right? That's the, re- the world's response. You say, I'm not drinking or smoking nothing. I have Jesus Christ in my life. And he comes in and he has touched me and he has healed me and he has made me whole. And, and that's how I live my life. I'm not dependent on those things anymore like I used to be. What if their first response is, how dare you ask me of what I'm smoking and drinking? That's a disrespect to my Savior. You need to get yourself saved, young man. I'll drag you to the altar at my church. Oh. No, thank you. Like, Right? This is what Peter's writing to us. He's saying, commit to spreading the hope that you have with gentleness, with respect, and with a good conscience. And I'm assuming that in this room, we all have to work somewhere different here. Some of you might have the gentleness down. Some of you might have the respect down. Some of you might have the the good conscience, the God conscience down. But when our when our goal is seeing our coworker, our family member, our neighbor, our friend come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, um, there's a strategy. It's not haphazard. It should be taken seriously. There should be a loving on that person. Think of, think of, uh, um, oh, I left it in my bag. It's in the, it's, I think it's Acts, Romans chapter 2. Sorry. I was never good in Sunday school with memorization. Ben may know it. It's, it's that the, it is the kindness of God that led us to repentance. It's not the judgments of God. It's not the laws of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so when we adopt the same mindset and we realize, hey, if God was kind to me and that led me to repentance, maybe Maybe my obnoxious neighbor, uh, maybe it's kindness that might lead them to repentance. Right? Let's use God's strategy. And that's what I'm imploring you with today. And that's this, that if you want to spread hope 
You can't treat people however you want to. You had a bad morning, so you're going to take to social media and rant. Coworker looks at your cross side, and you just go off on him at work. Like, if you really want to see the kingdom of God come into the lives of other people, we got to treat people God's way. If you want to see your family changed for, for God, if you want to see your workplace changed, if you want to see your community changed, God has a way. He shows us how. Jesus Christ demonstrated it before he was killed. We just don't like the his way. His way seems too difficult. I want to challenge you today as we close up and pray to commit in your heart to spread hope God's way and do the work it needs, it requires for you to be able to do that. Every profession has training. Right? As far as I know, I mean, unless it's picking up paper off the ground, I guess. I mean, I don't know. There's probably something out there that doesn't require training. But almost every profession requires training. There's a skill that has to be learned, attacked, and how to apply that skill, and how to do that skill, and those kinds of things. Spreading hope is no different. Can we commit today? I'm not going to... I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Uh, I want you to walk out of here saying, Lord, I, I want to be a spreader of hope, and I commit today to do it your way. Would your Holy Spirit show me the, the next step I need to take to see that that happens? And when God reveals it to you, just begin to avail yourself that way and move in that direction. Because the current trend of American uh, Christianity, the response that you are seeing in media and on, on um, the various YouTubes and all those kinds of things, is, for the most part, is not the God response. Don't emulate that. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning uh, that it was your kindness that led us to repentance. And I thank you for your disciples who led and trained and wrote and spread your word and for Peter who, who really has challenged us this month of September. And Lord, just the challenge to one, to live as people of hope, to recognize and value this hope and and, and, and two, to, to display it in our lives, to seek to live your way and not our culture's way or this world's way. Uh, those things in itself are difficult. But Lord, now even a third piece of that is this hope that we have when people ask the kind of response we're to give. And Lord, this, this well-reasoned, thought-through response of why we believe the way we believe and why we live the way we live done with a sense of gentleness and respect and a, and a conscience that's informed by you. No wonder the ancient world was changed. 
people who lived completely different, who responded completely different than the world around them. And I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you'd begin to show us how to live this way. Not just in word, but in action. That we would see the Imago Dei in people, just the image of God. Even in our worst enemy, Lord, would you remind us that this person is made in your image no matter how marred, no matter, no matter how far they are. And Lord, may our approach just be a love and a desire to help them understand and see that. Help us, Lord, to put our uh, sinful tendencies aside and respond to people the way that you would. Lord, as your Holy Spirit reveals to us how, where we can make changes and move forward, I pray that you would uh, give us the, the courage and the strength to, to bite our tongue, to respond with a smile instead of a frown, uh, to not feel like uh, we're shaken or, we, or, or any of those kinds of things, Lord, but just with a confidence and a love in our heart be able to respond in a way that would glorify and honor you. Lord, we, we bless you. We praise you this morning. We recognize you as our, as our source of hope. We love you in your precious name. Amen. Amen, church. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you next week.